Welcome to the Naked Podcaster, Naked at Noon. I'm your host, Jen Taylor. I'd like to thank NGBN Carson City TV for hosting the Naked Podcaster. Download the NGBN.TV app anywhere you can download an app, TV, or mobile device. Yeah, I can talk today. And catch all the episodes of the Naked Podcaster live and on demand. If you're looking for group coaching, one-on-one NLP coaching, or you want to have a super fun speaker join your conference, head over to my website, monof18.com, and get in touch with me. You can sign up for a 30-minute strategy session free of charge and see if we're a great fit. There's also a lot of free information on my website, a free quiz on my landing page designed to reinvent, rediscover, or remember what gives you purpose, passion, and drive, a comprehensive how to start a podcast. PDF on my podcast page and a free PDF copy of my book, Hello, My Name is Warrior Princess, on my book page. So check it out at momof18.com. If you'd like to be a sponsor, get in touch because we super love that. Today, my guest is Mark Leslie Lefebvre. Mark, how are you doing? And we're both naked. Surprise! <laughs> when in Rome, right, Jen? <laughs> Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Um, and you go by Mark Leslie. That's your published name, your author name. Yeah. Your website is markleslie.ca. Let's dive in there and tell me all things Mar- Mark Leslie. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, Le- Leslie's my middle name, uh, named after uh, my uncle Leslie. And I, I desi- decided long ago uh, after most people, now you did a brilliant job, but most people can't spell or pronounce my name. And I can't so, smell it. <laughs> no, I, I still can't after 51 years. It's kind of hard. <laughs> but um, I was a big fan of Piers Anthony. He was a fantasy author, and I read a lot of his books. And I and I read in his author notes at the end that his real name, like his name was Piers Anthony Jacob Dillingham something, like really long. And he just wrote by Piers Anthony his first two names. And I went, well, Mark Leslie, that's nice and easy. So <laughs> I started from the early days, and I thought, this is going to be easy. And it's it's my name already. But it's also right. uh, easier to spell and pronounce. And so it felt like I was being true to myself. But it also w- allowed me to to have a persona or a pseudonym. Now, I also have books under Mark Lefebvre because in the book industry, I got known over the years as Mark Lefebvre or Mark Lefebvre. That's usually how people <laughs> pronounce it. Um, and so okay. and so I do have some books that are under Mark Leslie Lefebvre just to differentiate from the scary, spooky skull guy uh, to the to the you know the guy who who actually wears a shirt and a and a tie and looks a little bit more professional. Yeah, wow. there's, there's a spooky guy. <laughs> it's interesting because when people when people see me and like I'm dressed like a normal human being, they're like, "Oh, I didn't expect you to be dressed." And I think, well, you know, I actually do own clothing, so it's good that you pointed that out. You want to make sure people know that you do own clothing. You know. So yeah, this is the first time I've ever done a podcast naked, so you know it's it's liberating. <laughs> It is liberating, isn't it? It's really fun. So yeah. let's dive in because Mark, there's a lot. I mean, first of all, just as an author, that's enormous. I don't know where you want to start on here. You have a podcast, a blog, you're in the news, uh, and your books. And your about page, by the way, is super funny because you're like, here's the short version, here's the medium version. If you want the super long version, I'm just warning you ahead of time. So I love your humor. Thank you. It's through it's through everything. So where do you want to start explaining to us about the website and what each of the tabs are? Yeah, so I I like to call myself a book nerd because I I knew one thing from the time my mom used to come home from the mini mart where she worked when I was a little kid and brought home comic books. I knew I loved to read mm. and I knew books were going to be a part of my life. The Sudbury, uh, I grew up in Sudbury, Ontario, which is in mid-northern Ontario and uh, the little town that we grew up in, uh, the library would be closed over the summer because it was attached to the school. And I was just, I was the the nerd who went and got a giant stack of books to read yeah. for the, the summer because I could, couldn't imagine not having uh, books to read. And so I, I define myself as a book nerd because I've worked in the book industry since 1992 as a bookseller. I've managed uh, independent bookstores, chain bookstores, mall bookstores, online bookstores, Etc. I've worked in uh, campus bookstores pretty much across the board, but but I've also in '92 was the first year I had my first short story published. So I was a writer uh, because I knew my grades weren't all that high, and I figured uh, I tried to get into journalism because I thought that's writing. But my marks weren't high enough to get in, so they accepted me into the arts and literature or arts uh, program uh, where I took literature because I thought, well, I like to read, may as well take English. 
and um, and then maybe maybe I get a job as a teacher, but my marks weren't high enough, so I got a part time job as a bookseller my last year of university, and and I stuck with it ever since. And so that same year I started bookselling was when my first story sold after you know ten years of rejection, and uh, which is typical for a writer. Um, and and so I, I define myself that way. So I, I've got sort of the mark who is the the creepy, scary guy who writes horror stories and true paranormal stuff. You've got the mark with the, you know, the business professional guy with the 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 the, the jacket and the shirt and stuff like that, who is somewhat professional most of the time, who uh, talks to writers about the business of writing and publishing. And then there's the mark. Um, well, that there's the other mark. There's the craft beer loving mark. There's the silly mark. There's the dad joke guy. There's the guy who's going to get in trouble because he took his shirt off on a live podcast. <laughs> when Liz gets home, she's like, oh, "We we we have a rule." The rule is you're not to take your clothes off in public or on on, <laughs> on social media. And I was like, oh, come on. But it's it's fun. So um, but that that speaks to my personality uh, as well, because my writing and in, in, in my life and social media is I'm pretty uh, transparent. I'm pretty I'm pretty much out there. I'm pretty much bare at all, which is why I was excited to talk to you because I was like, well, yeah, we can actually have an honest discussion and, and, yeah. and no pretension and, and none of that stuff. And and I think that's. That, that kind of authenticity is really important to me because life's short, right? Like, who are we fooling? Uh, you know, if I can't be true to myself, I can't be honest with, with who I am and what I am, uh, my foibles as well as the things I love. Really? What's the point? The foibles are almost better. I mean, right? Because that's what you learn yeah. by. That's who you really are. Successes are fantastic. We're going to talk about a lot of those today, but the foibles are yeah. what really mold us. Um, I had a question and then I lost it because of that. But you <laughs> <laughs> talk to me about the podcast and the blog. Mm -hmm. So my blog, I started blogging in uh, 2004, it was shortly after my son was born. And uh, and it was a really great way to just share my thoughts. I used it as a writing warm-up exercise. So I was working in Toronto and I was living in Hamilton, Ontario. And that was about an hour to two hour train ride, depending on <laughs> oh, the stops and things like that. And, um, and I would use, I would do writing warm up on the train before I started working on a novel. And it was like 15 minutes of just blogging my thoughts, kind of like a journal. That's all it really was, was a, a publicly posted journal where I shared my deepest thoughts and feelings. And, and that was really, really fun. Now I don't blog as much because uh, a lot of that energy is channeled into various social media. It's in Instagram, yeah. Facebook, and Twitter and things like that. And then my podcast, which I launched uh, in 2018, weekly podcast called Stark Reflections on Writing and Publishing. And what it was is I've been learning about the book business since I started writing. You know, since I first got my first uh, copy of Writer's Market uh, from Writer's Digest. And I've spent the majority of my professional life trying to help other writers understand the business of writing and publishing. And so the podcast, Stark Reflections, is me continuing to learn. It's really just an excuse to talk to people and learn more from them. And so the, the format is at the opening of the podcast, I share personal updates, which include my failures. And I fail a lot. I make a lot of mistakes. Uh, I often joke with writers to say, if you want to know how to do it properly, watch what I do and do the opposite and you'll probably be okay. Uh, then I interview them. It's usually a half hour to 45 minute uh, interview. And then I do a, a reflection at the end, which is the reflection on what I learned from that uh, podcast or from that interview. And, oh. and I call it Stark Reflections because it goes back to my best friend, Steve. Uh, we dreamed when we were children growing up in Northern Ontario that we would have a company one day. And we did, uh, called Stark Entertainment, Steve and Mark. He got the first two letters. I got the last three. And so when I, uh, we had Stark Entertainment, we DJed when we were in college. And, and that was a thing we did on the side to make money and have fun. And then when I went to self-publish my first book in 2004, I didn't want, I wanted to hide the fact that I was self-publishing because you would be as likely to admit that you self-published as you would admit that you masturbate. Like, like people do it, but they don't talk about it. Right. So I'm not. Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, and so I used uh, Stark uh, and Steve as a graphic designer and photographer. So he did the logo for me. And I've been using, I actually registered the business Stark Publishing. And I've been using that for the books that I publish uh, myself. 
what year were you born? That was a question I was going to ask you, just so I can get an idea of time. It was the summer of 69. Was it really? They wrote a song about you. I was December of 70, so there's no song about that. Okay, okay. So in 92, you were hitting 22 or 23 years old. Yeah, yeah. Just graduated. That was my. That's young. But you were first published at 13. No, no, no. I started writing when I was 13. Okay, I got okay, my okay. first rejection at 15. And I got almost a decade of rejection. It was kind of like my, my love life and my writing life were, I was perfect. It was like I was meant to be a writer because I'd been rejected so many times. I just, I was used to it. I was like, oh, good, another rejection. Hey. <laughs> so, um, but that's, you have to face that, right? You got to keep going. You've got to yes. just keep putting your stuff out there, right? The other reason I was asking you that is because you talked about journalism at university. And I know Canada works things a little different than the U.S., but right. I was born in 70. I graduated in 88 and I wanted to go into journalism. But back then it was like, use the manual typewriter, type it up. <laughs> make photocopies that are terrible, send this huge thick packet to 20 different people. Remember? Remember what it was like? Yeah, we had type. Well, you had probably had typing class. I did. And we had manual typewriters. And then yes. I remember there were only two rows because the school didn't have that much money. There were only two rows of the new electric typewriters where it's like, oh. you don't have to, you don't have to like, slam your fingers onto the keys us too we only had a certain number of them so yeah i had a shorthand class back then that's let's age our shorthand Ooh, yeah why anyway <laughs> had we known in 1988 where the internet was coming and all this stuff, I would have 150% been super aggressive about doing journalism back then. Journalism, photography, it was so, so hard. You know, your dream is to join the Peace Corps and take that picture that lands in National Geographic or write that article. And right. it was so hard and like no money in it at all. And look at what things are like now. So it's interesting you you brought that up and like it didn't work, you didn't get grades, you didn't, but it was also such an uphill battle. That was an industry that was such an uphill battle back then. And then self-publishing, oh, how cool was that? Except it was a dirty word, right? Oh yeah, of course it was. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was looked down upon. Uh, my best friends who were writers who were, you know, full-time authors, said the, the best way to kill your career is to self-publish. Now, this is back in the dark ages of self-publishing, right? Yeah. And that's why I hid behind an imprint. I didn't want anyone. Now, it was nice. They were nice enough to give me a blurb to put on the cover. <laughs> but, but they were like, yeah, we don't think the self-publishing thing is going to go anywhere. And, and then lo and behold, uh, it worked out quite nicely for me. It, it, <laughs> I created my own opportunities. Um, right. So that's it's been good. I actually got my first publishing deal likely because I self-published and demonstrated I was not afraid to hit the street and yeah. put myself out there and uh, and and market and promote. Right. And it was a lot different. So you said you self-published, first of all, the blog in 2004, that's early. I think I was eight or nine. And like, that's a that's a long time ago to have started a blog. That was before it was cool. Before all the cool kids were doing it, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. <laughs> You're, so you basically are trailblazing at this point, in my mind. And then you self-published, though, in 92, before, way before it was. Oh, no, no, 2004, 2004. 2004. Yeah. What was that? Yeah, no, no, no. I, had my, I, I sold my first story. My first story where I got a payment, probably $5 US and, and a contributor's copy of the magazine. And I was, like, so excited. It was my first publication. <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> yes, I have. Well, yes, that makes sense now. Okay, that makes sense. So okay. you let's go back to the website. So you started the blog. Um, yeah. And that, yeah, I think a lot of people you and I are similar. Once you start writing books and other things, the blog kind of doesn't get as much TLC. And then the really, podcast, yeah. how enlightening has that been for you? Oh, it's been amazing because um, I was tired of, there, there's so many podcasts out there uh, from people from the traditional publishing industry yeah. that have no idea of the possibilities that exist with digital publishing uh, because it's just a lot more dynamic. They can turn on a dime. And then there's a lot of uh, indie and self-publishing podcasts that have no clue that there's actually really smart things going on in the whole other half of the book industry that's mostly about print. And so yeah. I wanted I wanted the hybrid approach. I wanted to be completely open and accepting and embracing uh, both sides. But I also wanted to be critical of both sides too because I have a lot of you know soapboxes to get on. And it's yeah. like, no, it's my platform. I'm going to go on a rant. I'm going to tear someone a new one. I'm going to um, uh, be open and honest in learning. And I think the thing that I love about it is even though it's for writers, 
I love to talk to any sort of creators. I've had musicians, I've had artists, cartoonists on the podcast because uh, I learned this from Michael Connolly's uh, Harry Bosch. Uh, Michael Connolly's a thriller writer. Uh, Bosch, you may have seen the, the Amazon um, TV series on Amazon Prime. Um, and Bosch had a, a, a saying or has a saying uh, that everyone counts or nobody counts. And when he investigates a crime, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, the richest person in, in, in Los Angeles or his mom, who's a prostitute who, who was murdered and nobody solved her crime because she was a prostitute. And so Bosch is driven by this passion that when he's, everyone counts. And, yeah. and I like to apply that. Thank you, Michael Connolly, for the inspiration. But I like to apply that in the way that I approach is that everyone has something to teach you. When I go to writers' conferences and I may be doing a keynote talk and there's 600 people in the audience, I know that there's not a single person there that I can't learn from. Mm -hmm. uh, even though they're there to hear me, I know I can learn from every single person in the room. And if I shut my mind to the fact that everyone has a story that's valuable and interesting and that I can learn from, I lose. I stop learning. I stop growing. And so I try to adapt that in the approach that I take to the Stark Reflections podcast. And it's kind of like, it's my show. If you don't like it, whatever. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm learning at I least. Find that. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. I think that's so true. Storytelling is massive for me in my vernacular and having the freedom to be able to share stories. And I think in every experience we go through, we're there to teach and to learn. Yeah. Every experience we go through. And so if you take that with every conversation that you're exposed to, every person that you meet, every story that you get to learn. And like with you here today, the the fact that you're willing to share your story, trust me to hold space for you to share your story is such a gift. So I 100% I understand where you're coming from. It really is an honor to hear other people's stories. Yeah, yeah, you get it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you and I, we talk about it slightly differently, but people need to be less afraid of sharing their story. Yes, it's worth it. Yes, it's valuable. Yes, I want to hear it. Like there, that's people really, really question whether or not it's good enough. Like there's some model that you have to check boxes or fit in a box for your story to be good enough. It already is good enough. You just have to it tell us. Yeah, and here's the thing. I find when I'm most vulnerable, when I expose something that I'm embarrassed about or that I did wrong, or I admit to being a failure at something or whatever, I've often found that that's when somebody reaches out and says, I thought I was the only one. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for sharing the fact that because we, we put on this social media persona that we're perfect, that everything's rainbows and sunshine and giggles and gumdrops and all those things. But the reality is, is, uh, you know, life's uh, a lot of up and downs and there's a lot of good and there's a lot of bad. And so I think I think being honest and, and, and being forthright and, and operating with that sort of authenticity allows other people to feel they're not alone and if i mean isn't that what storytelling is all about yeah so you're connecting with other people yeah absolutely so. let's jump into the consulting because we just had a thing come up on the screen um yeah we, i love this this is great the, no, way to make yourself feel old with more than a quarter century of experience <laughs> i'm like oh my gosh how old are you wait we're like the same thing <laughs> yes. So, but I want you to jump in because your consulting and coaching, you're very passionate about. It's great yeah. when you are the one that trailblazes and writes the book and self-publishes and finds like you found both sides way more, much more than I have, but I understand that. And then you're yeah. asked to speak and stuff a lot. So can you dive in a little bit on the consulting and the coaching? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, because I've worked in the book industry since 92, and I'm traditionally published, and I self-publish, and I've, uh, you know, helped create a platform, Kobo, which is Canada's answer to Kindle, uh, created, like, would be the equivalent of Kindle Direct okay. Publishing. Okay. Uh, I, I work with draft to digital which is an Oklahoma City-based company that is a free platform that allows people to convert their books for free. Oh. So one of the things that happens in our industry is there are more sharks and predators out there than there are people operating with integrity and a lot of businesses are out there preying on the hopes and dreams of writers and i could cry every time almost every time i go to a, a conference where i'm asked to speak to writers 
somebody will i will talk about these predators and these vultures who are there to just you know sell you a package for fifteen thousand dollars and pretend they're gonna market your book and 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 they make all their money 80 percent of the revenue comes from selling you services and maybe if they're lucky 20 percent comes from actually selling your books yeah and and they and, they, and they, they manipulate and lie and so i almost feel like it's my duty to share as much as i can to ensure that authors understand where it makes sense to spend money and mm -hmm. who to look out for um because it makes sense to get an editor and make sure your work is as polished and professional as possible it makes sense to have um a good solid cover design that matches the market and the expectations of the readers but there's so many services out there that are designed to to screw authors yeah, uh, to screw them over and take their money, and then and, and you think about the most beautiful thing we can do is share with another person is to is to connect to other humans, and that's what books do. They allow this transcendence in time for people to connect, right? So as a storyteller, I feel so empowered. I mean, I, I think about as a writer, my highest point as a writer was receiving a letter from a teacher had a science fiction story and uh, is meant to be uh, used in grade four science class and it was science fiction uh like you took a science fiction concept from a grade four ontario textbook for grade four students and and i i wrote about this concept but i made it a story and then the teacher would use it to teach science concepts using fiction ah and my editor relayed through the publisher a teacher had sent a story saying i had this young guy in my class a reluctant reader never finished a single story and uh he wrote to say that you know mark Leslie's story was the first story he ever finished and not only that but he went home that night and he wrote the sequel to your story and i wanted to send it to you what i mean are you are you kidding me are you kidding me so this kid like whether or not he ever reads another word of mine again has no bearing i helped this child discover the beauty and magic and power and enablement that comes with reading and hopefully he's gone on to read way more brilliant writers than I will ever imagine I could be and 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 worlds and thoughts and and and, and philosophies and because we know reading is is a sign of empathy that that the studies have shown that people who read a lot uh, tend to tend to be more empathetic and I think the world needs a little bit more of that yeah uh, so when I think about that it's kind of like the high point of my career that that boy whose name I will never know who wrote a story and hopefully went on to be a reader because of a story that I wrote. I won. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> I want I so. want you to find him and co-author the the sequel. Oh my god, I would love to meet that. Cuz again, this guy's he's he's probably 30 now. Right? Oh, <laughs> or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, that but yeah. wow, what a gift, huh? What a gift. Yeah, how do you Exactly. How do you, how do you that? that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Okay. I get a book. I get a book turned into a movie. Woohoo! Great. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm still yeah. thinking about this this little guy, right? This little guy who didn't want to read. Like right. when I picked up my first Spider-Man comic. Are you kidding me? I fell in love with storytelling. Stan Lee, and he wrote the stories about this uh. geeky teenager like me who had superpowers and could help people. There, there, yeah. There you go. Spider-Man. Um. And and so that. I read those comic books wanting to share stories like that to inspire other people. So yeah, that's, um, um, but anyways, that's, uh, so my consulting, if I can help empower people to get their stories out into the world, then maybe I can help other young children like that, uh, see something, uh, see, have some hope and uh, be able to open their, open their minds to the, the magic. When you hand somebody a book, you're handing, you're handing them, uh possibilities it's yeah. just it's just beautiful no kidding let's jump back in time let's talk about your story uh my story well <laughs> i was born <laughs> as a little person conception <laughs> happened um well you said your yeah. earliest memories the concept of the spider-man comic books with great yeah. power comes, like that really hit you that's one of the first things yeah. that you wrote to me about um yeah. was that so i know you know, you grew up in Ontario or outside of Ontario yeah. and and you learned the love of reading early. Yeah. So I learned the love of reading uh, my mom. Uh, so my mom brought home comic books uh, mm -hmm. and uh, and my my mom's mom, my Baba, uh, would read to me. And, and, and again, she she was uh, Polish 
and uh, English was not her first language. She could speak quite well, but you know, she wasn't a, an avid reader, but she, she would read to me uh, and my mom would read to me. And I, and I love that uh, storytelling connection. I think uh, the other thing that I, um, I've, I've had a very privileged and very lucky, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a white male, six foot three, right? <laughs> Middle class. I'm, I'm very, very privileged. Uh, in in all the in all the way except for hair, I'm, I, you know that's the one thing. But it's okay. You can't have I'm, everything. I'm like, I know exactly. Well, the hair's on the wrong parts of my body, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like if you sh you should see my ass. No, <laughs> but, no, no, we should not. No, you don't want. No, you don't want to. We're not uh, burying nobody, it all there. No, no. not there. Um, but um, I was adopted. I, I uh, so I was very very lucky to be raised by two amazing human beings, two amazing parents. And then I was also lucky. I grew up an only child, but in my 20s, just before starting a family, I got to meet both my parents, my birth wow. mom and my birth dad, just before uh, he died. So I was very, very lucky. And I have seven uh, siblings, uh, one full sister that uh, she's awesome. And, and obviously all of my siblings are awesome, but I've, I've actually gotten a chance to get to know them. So I, got, I had like the best of all possible worlds. So wow. I can't complain. Uh, with maybe the exception that I think my, I, I like to write about my fears. I grew up and I and, and I loved because I would look the monster under my bed or the shadows, and, and a lot of my stories were scary stories because I was I was maybe I was trying to deal with the the, the my fear, my constant fear of everything. My biggest fear was uh, when my dad uh, was my dad dying, uh, and it was just something that just disturbed me. The thought of it just sent me into a tizzy, and. Um, I had to lose two dads uh, within several years uh, of, of each other. And, and the one story that I'm really, really glad, I wrote a, a thriller called Evasion, and it was kind of based on a, an accident my dad had when he was in his, when he was 20, a uh, motorcycle accident that almost killed him. And it ended up leaving his one leg shorter than the other. And so he, again, he there were certain things he couldn't do, tasks he couldn't complete because of this. And he walked with a certain gait. So after he died, um, I had this uh, vision of um, uh, seeing him everywhere, which sometimes happens. You think you see someone. It's like, oh, that's my dad. And I remember seeing this guy at, at this train station downtown Toronto, and he was walking in the exact same sort of limp that my dad had, and he was the same body shape. And I was like, oh, my God, it's my dad. And then I went, well, what if he's really alive? And and I wrote a thriller uh, where where the, he is alive. <laughs> uh, wow. That was amazing. Yeah, that's the that's the the story there. And I did that for NaNoWriMo. But... I had started working on this book years earlier, and in it, I I incorporated the the court documents of my dad, uh, the guy who hit him in the car, uh, like it was the, the document of of that trial, and so I had the actual verbiage of what he said, and so I wrote this scene, this flashback scene, of this novel, and I got to share it with my dad uh, before he died, and I remember him. Uh, we were hunting. We were up in Northern Ontario. It was like a November hunting. I don't hunt. I go up there because I can't shoot other beings. I could probably shoot a human, maybe not an animal though, because they're innocent, right? And uh, I would go up there and cook and write while my dad and my cousin would, would hunt. And so I was working on this manuscript uh, when we were up there. And I remember uh, he, had, he had read a printout of it. And, and I was like, well, dad, is, did I get it? Was it accurate? And we both wept. And I remember him, it was a time when he said, I've never been more proud of you. And I thought, whoa, this is cool. I got, uh, the book was never finished and it wasn't published until after he died, uh, several years after he died, uh, almost 10 years later. But at least I got to share with him something that I was so passionate about because he shared with me fishing and hunting and, and just being up early in the morning, which I still do, uh, even if I don't have to be up early because of this beautiful time of the day where everything's quiet. And, and especially when you're out, uh, you know, camping or you're out in nature and you can just appreciate the morning happening and, and the day unfolding before you. It's just this magic. So I, um, I forget where I'm going. I'm going, to, going back to my childhood. So my fear, I, I write about fears, but then I had to deal with that fear. And, and oftentimes a lot, of my, a lot of my fiction is dealing with the things I'm most afraid of, things, things that you might lose uh, and, and stuff like that. I think that's a great cathartic way to process through what you're feeling, right? Yeah. Is it is yeah. it for you? Oh, for sure, for sure. Because I mean, I, I wept while writing Evasion, 
and uh, and then putting it all together. And then, of course, uh, you know, I dedicated it to my dad because he had died uh, before the novel was published. But um, I have heard from many uh, readers who, because in I like putting like Piers Anthony did when when I was a kid and I was reading his stuff. I, I put author's notes at the end uh, of my mm -hmm. books and I talk about what inspired this, what inspired that. Mm -hmm. And I've had people reach out to say, oh my God, that happened to me too. When so-and-so died, I would see them for like six or seven months. I could swear I was on a train and I saw them, you know, for a second. And I thought that was them because again, it's part, partly uh, wish fulfillment. We wish we could have one more talk with them or, uh, you know, spend some time with them. So, Again, it's nice to know that people would read a story like that and go, yeah, it's a fun sort of thriller, but the the, the motif of, wow, if, if only I could have another chance with that person I lost. Right. Um, or, you know, or just to say sorry or to say thank you or any of those things. Uh, and so, again, that, that feels good. I don't think it's one of my best novels ever. Uh, again, you, you check Amazon, you'll see there's people... <laughs> don't like it, but that happens with all of my books. Um, but that's okay because it resonates with other people, right? Yeah. And, and, that's, and that's what's important, I think. When you were growing up, so I want to ask you about, I don't want to ask you first, but I want to ask you, you were adopted, which is a blessing. I think the biggest, uh, mm -hmm. most unselfish thing that parents can do when they're not ready is allow that child to have a chance with another family because oh, yeah. having had kids, you know, like I can't imagine doing that. It's a very, yeah. very, so there's that and then getting to meet them and how that happened. But also as a child yeah. who had a lot of fears, is that was that something just always as far back as you can remember? Was there something that prompted it? Did you feel like it was more than other people you talked to? I uh, or did you capitalize a, on it in your writing? I think I capitalized on it in my writing. I mean, I was a scrawny kid who would get beat up, uh, you mm -hmm. know, and, and I was not a fighter, I was just this little, you know, 10, 10 pound weakling. You know, in the comic books, there was I was a hundred pound weakling or whatever the things that was me getting sand kicked in my face. I never made it to the Joe Atlas, where I would lift weights and then go punch right, the guy, right. um, and, and so I think I think a lot of you know the superheroes who go and help the people who need help and, and are out there to do to do good in the world. I think reading about Spider Man and then wanting to write those stories that helped me, yeah. and then even even in my nonfiction, you know, my my true ghost story books, um, a lot of them are. I've always been fascinated by things that go bump in the night and uh, the unexplained, and it's like, well, we don't really know what this is, and what is a ghost. Is a ghost the spirit of the departed? Is the ghost a, a physical impression in time, like on an old TV tube? And so writing those books allows me to explore these deeper questions and thoughts. Uh, and in my fiction, I can, of course, explore fears and, uh, and, and a lot of what ifs, right? So, you know, my Canadian werewolf uh, series is uh, was prompted by, well, what if you lived in Manhattan, you know, in, in New York, the world's biggest city, or North America? Uh, the U.S.'s biggest city, I should say, and you you were a wolf. You turned into a wolf during phases of the moon. Um, where would you go? How would, how would you run around? Well, okay, well, what if what if you wake up the next morning? You have no memory of what it was like to be a wolf. What if you wake up in Battery Park with a bullet hole in your leg and the taste of human blood in your mouth, and you go, what the hell did I just do last night? Uh, well, first of all, before we figure out what happened... <laughs> I got to get some clothes to get home, <laughs> uh, oh. right? <laughs> and so I, I wrote this dark humor story about this morning of this guy. Uh, and uh, it was originally for an anthology I was writing for, which was meant to be the man behind the monster. And uh, it never sold. I, I got rejected, of course. Uh, but a good friend of mine, Sean Costello uh, from Sudbury, was a horror writer. He read the short story and... and uh, and he goes, so what happens next? He goes, the end of the 10,000 word story. He's like, what happens next? I go, nothing. It ends there. Right? He made his morning appointment. He found some clothes. He, 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 it's, it's over. It's done. He goes, but what about the other wolf? I'm like, oh, that's a story for another day. I'm like, that's not important. What's important is how does he just survive that morning? Because he has mornings like this all the time. And so he just kept bugging me. And then I eventually thought, well, okay, what else does he do? <laughs> What's the rest of his day right? Like, and, and that's when... Product placement sign. That's when uh, Canadian Werewolf in New York. Uh, that's when uh, that was the the prompting for that story, which is basically his his whole day as a human, uh, in between being a wolf and and what it's like because he has enhanced powers. Um, and so a lot of my a lot of those what ifs turn into 
stories because it's just really fun to explore whether it's therapy or whether it's fun i'll take them both but whether it's both so you took things that you were afraid of as a kid or as growing up and yeah. things that you were curious about and yeah. like comics and supernatural and what ifs i love curiosity and you created a story around those things yeah 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 that was um and, and again uh, my teachers so my mom would say why can't you write a nice story why can't you write a nice romance story? And I was like, mm, well, that's not as interesting because it's a happy ending. Uh, you know, it's like guaranteed a happy ending. I, I want some tension. Um, and, and my teachers, it would be hilarious because I would get these writing assignments and, you know, they'd give you a, a paragraph and they would ask you to just write a page and fill out what happens next. Well, I would write these 30 and 40 page epics because I was like, well, well, well what do you mean I have to stop at a page? And, uh, and it was hilarious because I loved any creative exercise, whether it was art. I remember in grade six art, I was not a good artist, but there's a picture of from the Spider-Man comics where uh, Gwen Stacy uh, is killed by the Green Goblin uh, in Spider-Man. And he's holding her while like shaking his fist at the Green Goblin, the top of the, the one of the Brooklyn Bridge or, or one of those. <laughs> and, and I remember that being a really, really powerful moment. Like, like really? I cry, and I, I think about this when I was watching uh, This Is Us uh, the other day. Okay. I'm crying and upset because somebody created a character in their mind that is not real. A director, a bunch of actors portrayed these characters, mm -hmm. and I'm so moved and so touched by these people who've never existed. Like, I cried when Gwen Stacy died. Uh, Gwen Stacy never existed. <laughs> Just like in, you know, when 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 Toby and Kate lose their baby, I cry, and and stuff like that happens. Like I, I just, it's so amazing how cathartic storytelling can be. Um, the other the other nice thing, a, a good friend of mine, uh, Robert J. Sawyer, had always said that good science fiction is a mirror held up to reality, and one of the reasons why it's easier sometimes, like in in shows like Star Trek. It's easier to go look at another race on another planet with a weird culture, which is really just something we do anyways, but we spotlight it because we're looking at the other. We can look at it with a bit of distance and a little bit of critique without feeling threatened. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think fiction can do that too. We can really understand a little bit about ourselves that um, maybe is too scary to look at directly, but if we look at it in the, in the face of characters, that, yep. can, that can be useful. And it's, well, it softens it, like you said, it distances it, it softens it, and we can embrace the story and how we feel and process that without feeling threatened by it, right? Yeah, Which exactly. Yeah. Tell me about the first, well, first of all, tell me about how your teachers felt about your 30 or 40 page essays. <laughs> and then tell me about your first writing at 13 and the massive rejection. Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, I think for the most part, most of the teachers really embraced um, the creativity. Um, I think they recognized that was something I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And and there were some teachers along the way. Uh, Mr. Roberts, who was also the librarian, because so I kind of had a soft spot for him. Yeah. Um, uh, Mrs. Eikenen, uh, Mr. Callback, like these are teachers that I had that they they took the time to acknowledge my passion and, and sort of gave me enough of a thumbs up to allow me to know that it was okay to be passionate about story and art. Um, and, and I'll never forget, I'll never forget that even, even a teacher, Jim Turcott, who was a, a physics teacher, uh, a math and physics teacher. Now I was never good at math and science and physics and I was more about the story, but Jim and I got along brilliantly. You know, we bonded over Monty Python humor and silly things like that and science fiction we both liked. And I remember having an in-depth conversation with him when I was a, you know, a, a cocky teenager and he was the teacher. And I remember him saying, uh, math is just as creative as, as, as storytelling in English because even though, you know, two plus two equals four or whatever, when you look at an equation, when you look at a story, that is... Um, that is creative because I, I, I'm trying to solve a problem and there's more than one way to get to the answer. There's more than one way to solve it. And I see just as much creativity. And he opened my mind at an age when it's really hard to open a teenager's mind. <laughs> well, yeah. I was a very stubborn, obstinate, 
prick. But you know, like that was um, as 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 a lot of teenagers can be, right? Like they, they're 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 forging, they're they're forging their own way, and they need to mm -hmm. to push back and 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 push the boundaries. Uh, but I remember pausing and going, "Wow, I never thought of that." Um, and so I have those gym moments uh, constantly, uh, and and he helped me see that there were creativity and things like science that you don't necessarily think of as creative uh, pursuits. Right. That's really exciting. So tell me about the first story when you were 13. And then I do want to ask you about yeah. finding your adoptive parents. So I'm not, I don't want to Yeah, yeah, that. sure. Yeah, yeah. So uh, when I was 13, um, <laughs> I was vitamin D deficient sitting. Uh, I, we, we had a pool. I was very, again, privileged. Uh, we had a pool. My friends were over. My cousin was over. My best friend was over. It was a bunch of friends and they're all out in the pool and they're having a good time playing. I'm inside I, on my mom's Underwood typewriter. I found this old <laughs> Underwood typewriter and I'm pounding out this really, really horrible, um, basically you would call it fan fiction. It was based on, you know, the Arnold Schwarzenegger, Conan the Barbarian movies mm -hmm. uh, of the time and, yep. uh, and the comic books that I, that I was reading. And, and playing Dungeons and Dragons, which I had done. And so I had this, I thought it was an epic. It was probably only 35,000 words, but I spent the whole summer working on this. I was just so excited to have time where I could just write. And I did it as a comic book and then I wrote it out. And it's a horrible, horrible, uh, you know, um, fantasy adventure of killing monsters with swords and having lots of sex. Because again, I was, you know, 13, 14 years old, that's all I was thinking about. And, and, and it's this really uh, horrible, there was a, a girlfriend I had later on in, uh, in high school, who got a hold of some pages of the manuscript and still is holding it on and jokingly threatens she's going to share this piece of crap with the world. <laughs> because it's like this trunk novel that I learned, uh, I, you know, I learned to cut my chops uh, on. And um, I, that I never got, I never submitted, never. But okay. I did send stories. So CBC is kind of like uh, NPR, uh, yeah. Canadian Broadcasting System. So it's a radio station here in Canada. And they had these writers' contests, and and I would, and, and I know they wanted literary stories, but I would write horror stories where really nasty things happen and everyone dies at the end, kind of like Hamlet, um, and uh, and I would constantly get rejected. Right. Uh, but every once in a while, I would get, uh, and this is really really important for writers to remember, is uh, sometimes I would get a note back from an editor, and. Um, I remember one time there was a Northern Frights anthology and I was probably in my twenties by the time I finally met the editor in person. This is prior to the internet, of course. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and he had rejected everything I'd sent, but every once in a while he would write a couple lines of text and I would take what he said and I would rewrite the story and submit it. And I would always sell it to another market. And when I met him in person, he said, Oh my God, Mark Leslie, I remember you. I'm so sorry. We could never connect. I never ended up publishing any. And I was like, are you kidding me, Don? You're one of the best editors I've ever worked with. I was like, no, I never sold you a story, which you know I would have loved to have been in one of your books. But holy crap, you helped me sell most of my stories. Thank wow. you for the awesome rejections you gave me, because I learned more from the rejection than yep. I would have. Well, I probably would have learned if had he edited the story and published it. But I learned a lot from the rejection just because he took the time to to, to say a couple things about it, and I thought about it, and then I applied that, and so. For me, rejection is kind of like failure is important because of the things you can learn. Yep. If you get it right by accident the first time, you maybe don't realize what you did right to get it there. But And trust me, I've made a ton of mistakes along the way. Yep. Um, making the mistake and then recognizing that you've made the mistake and what, what you could do differently is valuable. So yeah, rejection's hard. Uh, it's not always easy, but I think there's some really... There's some really good value in, in what you do with it. It's kind of like, how do you react to those external forces? That's really important. No kidding. So did you grow up knowing you were adopted? And tell me how you met your adoptive family. Yeah. Uh, that's really fascinating sure. to me. Yeah. So uh, my, my mom told me uh, I was adopted when I was young. And then I forgot because it's a convenient thing to forget because, well, my dad had dark hair and I had dark hair, you know. <laughs> it kind of yep. looks the same. <laughs> and and then we, I was playing with a, a friend of mine uh, who lived down the street. And we got in, we fight every once in a while, as kids do. And and then he came out and said, well, my mom says that you can't get along because you're adopted. 
And then there was a whole bunch of friends there and everyone's like, no, Mark's not adopted. Cause it was almost like, this is the worst thing you could ever be. It's like, oh my God, that meant you were rejected. Ah. Right? right. So it was this, and I just went home bawling my head. I'm mom, you can't believe it. I was adopted. Ah. And she's like, yeah, I told you, you are adopted. And I'm like, ah. and I, you know, we cried together and stuff like that. And then she told these beautiful stories of how they chose me. Um, and it was this really defining moment where I had initially seen being adopted as this negative, horrible, nasty thing. I mean, I have epilepsy as well. Uh, you know, I'd had seizures in school in front of people, very embarrassing. Uh, I've since, uh, I, I, I sort of outgrew it. I haven't had a seizure since I was uh, 14 years old. But um, it was kind of like I took this embarrassing, humiliating experience, or at least it was meant to be, to, to feel that way. And, and saw it as a beautiful thing that happened to me, as a wonderful thing that happened to me. And on the flip side, when I got older, uh, we would go to the doctor. So I had epilepsy. And oftentimes I would be right. sitting there in the hospital with my parents and the doctor would always go, is there a history of epilepsy in the family? And then we go, well, Mark is adopted, right? And so that was the constant thing. And, and so when, when, when I was married and um, my wife and I were considering having children, I was thinking, I know nothing about my biological history. What if I have some genetic disorder that I'm going to pass on? And and so I went on the internet was young. <laughs> it was very, very early days of internet. AOL, I was on, I think. Wow. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and I went online and I think it took me less than 45 minutes of doing some searching. And I, 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 my wife got home from work and I said, I think I've, I think I found myself. There's this no wow. this this guy. And so I reached out, I sent him an email and he and I said, here's what I know. And and on, on the forms that I knew, I knew I had a sibling that had uh, asthma. There were two born two siblings born before me. That's all I knew. And and they sometimes lie on these forms. So I sent right. the details that I knew, and the guy came back and he said, This is where I was born on this day. Uh, and uh, and he said, I think I think we found your birth mother. She's looking for you. Um and so it turned out that um, my my birth parents, my mom and dad, um, were both going through a separation and a divorce uh, at the at the time, or they were separated when my mom met my dad. She had two kids. Um, they ended up uh, she she got pregnant with me, and they were then having to deal with their spouses that were nasty on either side, <laughs> uh, dealing with that. She ended up losing her children to Children's Aid because she was on her own trying to stay away from the previous husband and keep the kids right. safe. And therefore, when I was born, she had no choice but to give me up because she had nothing. She got back on her feet uh, not that long after, um, but I'd been adopted within a couple months yep. and I was already adopted. Um, and then they got married. Uh, her and my dad got together. They got married. Uh, I had a full sister. I, you know, I had the I had the, the luxury and privilege of 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 standing uh, at her wedding uh, and becoming friends with her because uh, Laura and I ended up connecting because she was like this. Oh my God! I, I didn't know I had any siblings, and suddenly I had this full. And she had all these half siblings, but didn't have a full right. sibling uh, either. So it was like we had this bond together, and we got to know each other. And then I got to meet my parents, and it was an, an interesting experience. Two things that struck me: I was living in Ottawa at the time. Is uh, when I met them, they met me as an adult, and my parents love them to death. Uh, the parents who raised me. Um, I was always struggling, you know, the teenager to be seen as an adult, but I'm an adult, damn it. I'm in university now and treat me like an adult. And it was like, well, I, then I learned, well, show me that you're actually an adult first and then we will. But they met me as an adult and I didn't ever had to bypass all of that sort of like, it, it's, I, fortunately before my dad died, I got to recognize and see him as a good person that I loved and admired. Mm -hmm. And we could sit down and have a beer together. And, and I just liked spending time with them. Uh, so fortunately, I got past that, anxiety, that teen anxiety stuff that happens. You know, and then I grew up and go, wow, my dad learned a lot when I was in university. Right? <laughs> like, he learned a lot about life. He knew nothing. When I was 18, he knew nothing. But now that I'm 22 and I've learned, now he's learned a lot. I went, I, what did he do in the last four years? Um, so I, when I met them, it was like that. And then, uh, and then my mom was in a town uh, to visit. And we went out for lunch one day and, and she was very serious. This is my birth mother. Mm -hmm. She was very serious. And she said, uh, 
I, I really want to apologize for giving you away. And, and she was horrible and she just wanted to be forgiven. And I was like, are you kidding me? You had no choice. I know you love me and I had a really good life and I get to know you now. Right. We get the best of all possible worlds. I mean, so it was this thing and I thought, wow, she had a lot of anxiety um, and uh, and had actually blocked it out of her mind for, for a long time. Um, yeah, uh, because it was a it was a traumatic experience for her, not knowing where I was and what happened to me. So we we both got to benefit from it. But I was kind of like, what do you have to apologize for? Right. And 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 it's funny because I've never felt rejected. I mean, I've been rejected in on the dating scene constantly, but I've never felt rejected by my mom. Uh, you know, I've never had these these feelings. I've read books about uh, adoption where where um, there's a lot of anxiety and there's a lot of well, I was not good enough and they gave me up and that's something that perpetuates. Now maybe it does affect my, maybe it does affect me uh, in ways that I'm not familiar with. Maybe I'm just waiting. I always joke uh, that my fiance. Uh, it's a constant joke. Is like, well, when when are you going to leave me? Because everyone leaves me. And and maybe that comes from, maybe it's a deep-rooted anxiety I have that everyone's just going to abandon me one day, right? So who knows? Uh, but for the most part, I've never really consciously felt rejected. And and so it was it was so good to have that that discussion with her to to ensure that she knew that I had I do not bear a single ounce of ill will towards her. So that was a that was a good it was a good feeling, I think. I thank you for sharing that. I really love that. Um, now, it wasn't too long ago, six -ish years ago, that mm -hmm. you had a 20 year marriage with mm -hmm. the wife of your only child that ended. And right afterwards, you ended up being forced to leave the corporate world. So let's talk. I wanted to talk about yeah. rejection. There's rejection in the book, there's rejection in dating, there's potential rejection in being adopted. Yeah. But what, is, is this uh, some sort of, is there a theme here? Are they strung together? Is it different? Because you lost your relationship of 20 years and your corporate job kind of at the same time. And what were the yeah. blessings out of that? Yeah, it was just, just within a couple of years. Um, so the blessing was, I always thought, um, I always thought we would be together the rest of our lives. She's a wonderful woman. I still, I, I love her in that non, in that platonic way that you can love another human, not romantically. Right. Um, and I always thought we would be together. And so when when she said uh, it was over, that was that was a really difficult thing for me to to come to terms with. But I realized over time, when I looked at it, that she was the brave and strong one. And and I really mm -hmm. admire and respect her for how hard it must have been to do that. Because I don't know if I could have done it to her. I don't know even had I had I been consciously feeling what I knew was there. Uh, all along that we had just right. become good friends. Um, I don't know if I could have hurt her in, in that way to be brave enough to hurt her because she hurt me, but I don't resent her for it because she hurt me in a way that helped us both to grow in new ways. So it was actually enriching. Had that not happened, I would not have met Liz who I'm with now. Right. Um, and, and, and I met Liz nine months after that, uh, like not, not that long. Um, so that was, that was a, that allowed me, that allowed me to see that it's not over, uh, which is an important element. And then I, uh, I was working uh, at a corporation where I was, uh, I loved it. I gave my life to it. I, I actually, part, part of the reason my marriage ended, I realized as I was reflecting recently on some writing I'm doing for a book that's coming out, uh, ironically, because it's all therapy, right? Yeah. Was that the beginning of the end of my marriage was related to my job. Uh, okay. She had said this to me. She'd said this about my work and she'd said this about my writing is that work is your mistress. Uh, that was one of the things she said. And, and she was right. Work was my mistress. Was my mistress. Uh, I was not dedicating uh, as much of myself as I should have to us, to our relationship. And, and, and that was a failure. That was a mistake that I made um, right. that I, I learned from. Um, but the same thing happened. I gave so much of myself to this job. And, uh, and then I had a boss who was a good guy, smart guy, had lots of experience. We never saw eye to eye and our, 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 we, we mixed like oil and water. Mm -hmm. And, and the writing was on the wall for the longest time where I actually purposely tried, I couldn't quit. I didn't want to quit. I wanted to be fired. And I consciously 
purposely kept going and kept butting heads with him, knowing that he couldn't fire me. I was doing such great things for the company, but we didn't get along and he was a, a, an executive and I wasn't. <laughs> um, and so uh, it was it was this wonderful sense of relief, but also this wonderful sense of, oh my God. I called Liz and I said, yeah, I, I thought he was gonna fire me today. He did. She goes, well, how do you feel? I go, I feel ter terrified. I don't know what I'm gonna do next, but I also feel so relieved that I don't yeah. have to deal with this anymore. And there was this wonderful elation. And and again, I, I, it got really low. Um, and then I realized that I now had what I wanted to redefine who I was, just like, you know, being dumped from the relationship just a couple, couple years earlier. Uh, and then realizing that that's okay. It's not, I mean, it's never, it's never too late. Like you can always keep trying. And I go back to that rejection thing from writing. It's like, well, right. this story just belongs with another editor <laughs> right? or, or right. some other reader's going to like it. So that worked out nicely. I love that. That and that kind of forced you to do sort of what you wanted to do that maybe you were afraid to do or hesitant or reluctant to do, right? And you yeah. you launched into this entirely different life with completely new balance. Yeah, and I do I do work part-time for a corporation and they had wanted to hire me full-time, but I wanted to maintain the independence. Uh, I love them and I love working with them, but I never wanted to be in a position like I was before. I wanted to I wanted to have the control uh, to, to um, you know, not not be a corporate man, but just be a man who could be myself right. uh, and and operate with integrity. And so, and and I have the best of both worlds, right? I have that part time work that's kind of steady. And then I've got my consulting work that kind of comes, as you know, it comes and yeah, goes. Yeah. It's like writing income, right? Yeah, I got oh, I got yeah. a check. Oh, I got another check, <laughs> right? So um, I, I get the best of. Of both uh, with those, um, but again, I think I had to. I had to sink to that depth. I had to. I had to be in a position where I was praying every day for for them to give me a package mm -hmm. <laughs> and get and it's like, okay, you're done. Yeah. I, I don't care what you've built here. You're done. Uh, and, and and again, it was kind of funny because I, I still love all of the people I worked with, and and I I don't harbor any resentment, uh, and I still respect them. But I was so glad not to have that. Uh, and again, I don't harbor any resentment for my ex-wife. She's a wonderful, amazing woman, um, and, and 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 a great mother too. And 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 we 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 made our child a priority, and we've kept that. So I've been. I, I think I think I've been really, really, really lucky and really blessed when you think about it. Uh, that I've been able to go through these things and magically come out with you know just a few scars. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so. I want to finish our time together. I want to know how many books you've written. Okay. What one was released today? Oh! <laughs> yeah. And um, if I, since you have several and you have several different categories, yeah. which one should I pick first? And you can go through each category or however you want to do that. But, and then yeah. uh, who's your, who's a good client for you and what's the easiest way to reach you? So I just said like four things. I don't even remember now. Okay. So, your book was um, released today. What book was released today? Fear and Longing in Los Angeles is my, uh, the next book in my uh, Canadian Werewolf in New York uh, series. And okay. so that's a, oh. it's an urban fantasy thriller of my superhero guy. Now he's in LA, and of course he's gonna hopefully uh, you know fight some bad guys and fall in love if ever if so he's not longing anymore. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah. so yay! Congratulations uh, on that. What does that make for published books? How many is that? I think it's tough to say. So 25, 26, somewhere in that. Okay, room. Uh, I stopped counting. Yeah, twenty six. Okay. Yeah. So. Take us through your genres, which I okay. happen to have up here if we need them. Sure. You have the nonfiction writing and publishing. So that's you yeah. writing to help people. That's your yeah. consulting. I think um, the seven P's of publishing success is the smallest one. It's the most uh, inexpensive one. And that's okay. the one for beginning writers. Whether you want a traditional publisher, self-publish, it's just these are the seven keys that I've identified through working with thousands of authors over the years. Um, what makes a successful author that's probably a really good intro okay and then you have the paranormal series the nonfiction. so these are true stories that you yeah. wrote about paranormal where I would think, we start yeah, tomes of terror because it's haunted bookstores and libraries 30 percent of them are in the us 30 percent in canada 30 percent rest of world because i'm passionate about bookstores and libraries and ghosts yeah. 
you get to see all my passions and maybe maybe there's a ghost in a library or a bookstore near you. So fiction, you have the werewolf series, then you have yeah. a couple others, the eye death and the evasion. So yeah. you said you didn't think evasion was your best one. I, I like, I think it's a passionate book. I think I, yep. I think I could probably rewrite it and make it better, but I'm, I'm moving on to other things. I, I would recommend, so Snowman Shivers, which is free okay. in ebook. It's available in print and uh, audio. It's short stories, so you're not investing too much time. I would check out, uh, so this time around is free as well, which you're showing on the screen right now. But Snowman Shivers is dark humor, and it's about what would happen if a snowman actually came to life. And you can download the ebook for free on, you know, Amazon and Kobo and Google and Apple and all those main platforms. And then that way you haven't invested too much time and energy. And if you like that fiction, you've got the whole Canadian werewolf uh, series, uh, uh, right. and all of my other novels to check out. So if you kind of, if, if you can stomach that, you know, that 10,000 word short piece, then maybe, maybe you'll like the rest of my stuff and you'll be willing to pay a little bit for it. Thank you, Mark, for being on and sharing your story with me today. I appreciate you. Thanks, Jen. It's been, it's been a blast.